Good morning. It's good to see all of you this morning, as always, and um, it's a tremendous privilege to be able to open up God's Word with you this morning. So I want to first and foremost thank Pastor John and and Pastor Tom for giving me uh, this tremendous privilege. Um, And for today, the focus of our time is going to be in Psalm 11. So if you would please turn with me in your Bibles to Psalm 11, and this is the sixth message and our series on the Psalms, Certain Truth in Uncertain Times. And I just want to say, first and foremost, we've been going through Psalm by Psalm, and last time we were in Psalm 4, and today we're in Psalm 11. That does not mean that we're skipping between you know Psalm 4 and Psalm 11. I just really wanted to keep those of you that might have a little bit of OCD on your toes. Uh, we most likely will be going back to those other Psalms, so... We're going to be in Psalm uh, 11 today. So let me begin first by reading this psalm, and then we'll ask the Lord's help. Psalm 11. In the Lord I take refuge. How can you say to my soul, flee as a bird to your mountain? For, behold, the wicked bend the bow, and they make ready their arrow upon the string to shoot in darkness at the upright and heart. If the foundations are destroyed, what can the righteous do? The Lord is in His holy temple. The Lord's throne is in heaven. His eyes behold, His eyelids test the sons of man. The Lord tests the righteous and the wicked, and the one who loves violence His soul hates. Upon the wicked he will rain snares, fire and brimstone and burning wind will be the portion of their cup. For the Lord is righteous. He loves righteousness. The upright will behold his face. Heavenly Father, Lord, I pray that you would speak to us now in your word this morning. Pray that you would be magnified in our thoughts and our actions and our deeds as we go from this place. Have your way in us, as you teach us from your word. Amen. In preparation for this morning's sermon, I I came across an article by a gentleman by the name of George Yancey. George Yancey is a professor at Baylor University. And in George Yancey's article, he details uh, some research that he was doing on anti-Christian discrimination in America. In this article, he he goes over the details of his findings, his findings which he published uh, in a book um, shortly after that. In his study on anti-Christian discrimination in America, this is what George Yancey discovered. He discovered that 32% of all Americans like conservative Christians significantly less than any other group in America. And he asks himself the question, well, who is it that is making up this 32% of Americans that do not like Christians? And he said, my research indicates that those with anti-Christian attitudes are more likely to be white, male, wealthy, highly educated, politically progressive, and irreligious. Those first four markers indicate individuals who have quite a bit of per capita social power. In other words, 
the more powerful and influential you are in the society, the more likely you are to be very anti-Christian in America. Then he asked, the next question is, well, what is the nature of this anti-Christian sentiment? Are these individuals that just have a mild disgust or is it irrational hatred? And in order to answer that question, he sent a survey to these you know, 32%, asking them open-ended questions to elicit responses from them in order to figure out just how the, the nature of their distaste was. Here's what some of the responses that he got. Listen to what some of these people said. Kill them all. Let their God sort them out. Another person said, a torturous death would be too good for them. Another person said, I'd be a bit giddy, certainly grateful, if everyone who saw himself or herself in that category, that is Christian, were snatched permanently from our societal peripheries, whether by holocaust or rapture or plague. Finally, last one says, I am only too well aware of their horrific attitudes and beliefs, and those are enough to make me see them as subhuman. This is what the 32% of Americans had to say about those who held conservative Christian values. Obviously not a mild disgust. Irrational hatred. Now, as horrid and bone-chilling as that is, it gets worse when you realize when this article was written and when these studies were released. Yancey's article was published in the fall of 2014. Excuse me, his, his book with this research was published in fall of 2014. So, that is to say that what we just read is pre-2014, and a lot of things have changed in our country since 2014. I mean, think about it. People were saying these sorts of things before gay marriage was unilaterally legalized in our country. They were saying these things before we ever had debates about transgender restrooms. They were saying these things before California attempted to pass laws about conversion therapy. These were said before men would dress and drag and appear in elementary schools. This was said before the Equality Act was drafted. These things were said before a pandemic became reason to shut down churches. These things were said before Donald Trump and before Joe Biden. A lot has transpired in our country over the course of the last nine years, and if that's what they were saying then, it just leads me to believe that it's probably worse now. It's probably much worse now. That 32% is most likely too low of a number. So the big question is this, what do we do? As Christians, as conservative believers in the Lord Jesus Christ, how should we respond to rising hostilities that George Yancey describes in his article? And perhaps you find yourself asking this question in light of the things that you read on the news, you hear about. You, you think of things like, well, what, what am I going to do if I lose my job? What do I do if I lose my job because of what I believe in my convictions? How will my children be treated in school because of our faith? 
What will the world think of them? And what will the world look like when they grow up and they're adults and they have children? What will my unbelieving family members start to think about me in light of these rising hostilities? These are very real questions that we wrestle with on a regular basis. And the difficulty is, is that there's lots of suggestions out there. There's lots of ideas swirling around it how conservative Christians can sort of combat this wave of anti-Christian discrimination. You know, people will say things like, well, we need to be more politically active. We need to be more involved in politics. We need to support Christian businesses. We need to encourage our young people to pursue jobs in secular media and academia and the fine arts. And there may be some validity to some of those things, but... I believe that the Bible provides the ultimate answer. I believe that the Bible is clear on this particular issue, and specifically here in this psalm that we just read, Psalm 11, which is a psalm of David, a man who certainly faced rising hostilities because of his relationship with God. And David is confronted with the exact same question that we are confronted with this morning. In verse 3, the question is posed, If the foundations are destroyed, what can the righteous do? In other words, if the foundation of an upright, seemingly conservative, morally conservative society collapse, what can the righteous do? And David provides us with a solution to that question. He provides us with a solution to the problem that we face. What do we do in light of rising hostilities towards Christians? And it's going to be seen in David's response. David's response to a crumbling society around him. So I would like to break this passage up, this Psalm 11, uh, into two components. In Psalm 11, I want you to see two components of David's response that help us to understand what we should do when society collapses around us. I want you to see how David responds to rising hostility toward the people of God so that you could know how you ought to respond when you are faced with the same. And it's inevitable. It's coming. And we need to have answers on what we should do. And the first part of David's response is found in verses 1 through 3. And we'll title this, David's Resolve. David's Resolve. And this begins with one declarative statement. In verse 1, In the Lord I take refuge. Now there's two things to note. If you are reading from a New American Standard Bible like I am, you'll see that the Lord is all capitalized letters. If you're reading in the LSB, it's translated Yahweh because that's exactly what this is. This is the covenant name of God. It is a resolve that in the covenant-keeping God, Yahweh, who never lies and always keeps His promises, in Him, in this God, I have taken my refuge. And another thing to note that in the original language... It's intentionally placed in the emphatic position in the verse. It's placed at the very front. It's the very first word that appears in the original language. This is to say that David is making a declarative statement that Yahweh's the answer. 
David is essentially taking his flag and planting it in the ground. It's in Yahweh alone that I find refuge. And looking further, he says, you know, taking refuge. In the Lord, I take refuge. A refuge is something that we're familiar with. It's a, it's a place of shelter. It's a fortress against enemies. Uh, it's a safe haven when trouble arises. So David is saying that it's in Yahweh I find my shelter. It's in Yahweh I find fortress against my enemies. And Yahweh I find a safe haven when trouble arises. And this is very common language for David. He says these sorts of things all throughout the Psalms. And as we go through our series in Psalms, you, we will be faced with this language of David taking refuge in the Lord on a regular basis. But one of the most clearly stated examples, I think, is in 2 Samuel chapter 22. If you want to flip there really quickly, 2 Samuel 22, David begins to pray after the Lord has rescued him from Saul. And he says this in verses 2 and 3, 2 Samuel 22, 2 and 3, The Lord is my rock and my fortress and my deliverer, my God, my rock in whom I take refuge, my shield and the horn of my salvation, my stronghold and my refuge, my Savior. You save me from violence." Now, flipping back to Psalm 11, we need to take notice of what David is not saying. What David is not saying. Let's see what David is not taking refuge in. David is not finding his security and his comfort and his safe haven in things that we so often do. He's not finding his refuge in political powers. He's not finding his refuge in human courts. He's not finding his refuge in his wealth or his possessions or his abilities. Nor is he finding his refuge in God plus these things. Like, he's not saying, oh, I believe in God and I trust in him and he is my refuge, but, oh man, I really hope that these court decisions go our way. Or I really hope that the political powers turn and adjust. Then, then I will have a sense of, safety, and refuge. No, David says, in Yahweh alone, I take refuge. Now, this begs the question, are you doing the same thing? Are we doing the same thing? Are we as resolved as David is to say definitively, I take refuge in the Lord alone and not the things of this world? Do we put our comforts in other things too? Look, midterm elections are right around the corner. In a week, in 10 days from now, are you going to be able to say, it's okay, I find my refuge in the Lord. It doesn't matter who has won or who has lost. It doesn't matter the direction the country goes. I find refuge in the Lord. If laws are passed that make our beliefs illegal, are we going to be able to say it's fine? Because I am resolved as David to find my refuge in the Lord. 
even when things are going well socially, like even if we remove, you know, anti-Christian discrimination, how often do we put our trust in things like our job security? We put our, our hope and our trust in our physical abilities. We find our comfort and safety in things like a clean bill of health for us or for our family members. We find our comfort and security in future aspirations. Like it's, it's okay of what's going on here because, you know, I've got a plan for my life. We find comfort and security in all the wrong places. If all of these things were taken away, could you say with David, I take refuge in the Lord, not these things. That's not always easy. We have to admit it's not easy. And we are certainly tempted to be anxious about all sorts of things that are going on around us. And David lived in a fallen world too. But even though David was tempted, David does not waver. He is resolved to take refuge in the Lord, no matter what temptations may come his way. Look with me at the second half of verse 1. David asks the question, How can you say to my soul, flee as a bird to your mountain? David is approached by a group of would-be well-wishers, people that are seemingly looking out for David's best interest, and they're telling David, flee. Flee, David. And he rebuttals and says, how could you even suggest this? How could you say, flee? Now, he's not talking about a physical flight, meaning they're not telling him, run away and get out of Dodge. Look, he says, how can you say to my soul? Which emphasizes that this is an internal struggle, not an external battle, really. They're telling him within, you need to flee. How can you say to my soul? And then when he rebuttals and basically says, how could you even suggest that? That's preposterous. In light of the fact that David actually did physically flee in his life when hostilities arise, there were times when David would run away. In light of that fact, what this verse is saying, it's not talking about a physical flight. They're not telling him to leave, and David is not saying that's preposterous because David did leave. What they're telling him to do is despair. David, give up. David, stop holding on to these values. David, lose hope and despair. And they say, Flee like a bird. Flee like a bird. Birds are easily spooked. Even with the rustling of a leaf close by or a snapping of a twig, they scatter at the easiest thing. Why are they telling him to give up hope? Why are they telling him to despair and flee internally? Well, because, verse 2, for the wicked bend the bow. This is language stating that they are preparing for war. Literally, the, the original language says that they are trampling on the bow. That is that they are stepping on one end of it and compressing it down so that they can bring the bowstring up to the top and get ready for battle. And it says, they make ready their arrow upon the string. 
The wicked are taking aim, David. They're coming after us to shoot in darkness at the upright at heart. They are operating in darkness. They are operating under the cover of night. They are operating in stealth. We don't know exactly what they're doing, but we do know that they're coming. We do know that things are about to get bad. David, flee. Give up hope. Abandon this lifestyle. Blend in. Sometimes it feels like that we live in days like this, right? It feels like that the war is rising. It's on the horizon. And it's about to get really bad. The wicked are rising up, preparing their weapons, working in the dark, working in secrecy to come after God's people. Then our question comes. David Verse 3, if the foundations are destroyed, what can the righteous do? If the foundations of our society crumble away and no longer does a society appreciate conservative values, does our society commend a relationship with God? If all of that fades away, David, what can you even do? What can the righteous do? A foundation is critical to the stability and the viability of a structure. If the foundation is compromised, then there's no way that a structure standing on top of it could last. This is precisely why Jesus uses this same illustration in Matthew chapter 7. When he says, if anyone hears these words of mine and does them, he would be like a wise man who built his house upon a rock, upon a sturdy foundation. But if he hears these words of mine and he does not do them, he's like a fool who built his house upon the sand. It has a structure that's not uh, fit, has a structure that will not stand when the winds and the waves come. The foundation will be compromised and the structure will collapse on top of it. So these would-be well-wishers say to David, in light of what's happening, David, what could possibly be done? The foundations are crumbling. Everything around us is collapsing. Give up. Despair. And David will not give in. He will not give in. He says, how could you even say this to me? How can you say to my soul? This is preposterous. In light of who my refuge is, my refuge is in Yahweh. How could you even suggest that I despair? And give up hope. My refuge is in the Lord. Brothers and sisters, we must be this resolved. We must strive to have this attitude in our hearts. That no matter what comes in life, no matter what happens to our society, we should be able to say with David, in the Lord I take refuge. How could you even suggest otherwise. But how do we do this? It seems so simple and, and it's so easy to say. And, and some of you are thinking, well, that's easy to, for you to say. You're not dealing with the things that I'm dealing with at home. You're not dealing with the things that I deal with on a regular basis at work. It's hard And we know that we should take refuge, but so many times we often fail. 
So many times we see something come across the news feed and immediately our reaction is to fear and be anxious and to be worried. So the question is, is how do I do this? I want to have this resolve that David has, but how? How can I be resolved? Where does he get this resolve from? And that brings us to the second component of David's response. And that is this, David's reasoning. David's reasoning. First we saw David's resolve in verses 1 through 3, and now we see David's reason. And as often is the case... David's theology affects the way that he lives. And that should be the case for us too. And actually it is the case for us. What you believe about God will have an effect on how you live your life. So the reason why David makes God his refuge is rooted in who God is and what God does. And this should be true of us too. We should not fret because of the world around us, because of what we believe about God, what we believe about who He is and what He does. So why does David make the Lord his refuge? Well, let's let's look at a few reasons. Let's look at a few things, a few statements that David makes about who Yahweh is and what He does. First is this, Yahweh rules. The first part of verse 4, the Lord is in His holy temple. Now, it's interesting, David was not alive during the time when the physical temple was there. So when David says the Lord is in his holy temple, he's not referring to a physical building. He is referring to the cosmos. He is referring to all of creation. He is referring to all of the universe, that God is in all of it that He transcends all of it, that He's above all of it. And that's even further elaborated in the second half of verse 4 when it says the Lord's throne is in heaven. He is above all of that. That is to say He's transcendent. But not only is He transcendent, He is also imminent, meaning that He is intimately involved. He's not just out there on the periphery. He's also intimately involved in the things that are going on. It says the Lord's throne is in heaven. The Lord is enthroned and he is ruling and he is reigning from above and within. He's not just an onlooker. He's ruling everything. The Lord rules And so David says, I can be resolved because I know that my God is in all of it and above all of it and intimately in all of it. The Lord is in his holy temple. The Lord's throne is in heaven. So David's resolved because of the fact that Yahweh rules, but also because Yahweh sees. Yahweh sees. Second half of verse 4, his eyes behold, his eyelids test the Son of Man. God sees. God sees what's going on. God sees what was going on in David's life. And friends, God sees what's going on in our life too. God sees what's going going on in our society. He knows what's going on in the courthouses. 
He knows what's going on in the elementary schools. He knows what's going on in the doctor's office because he sees it all. He sees it all. And it says his eyelids test the sun's of man. This is anthropomorphic language, giving us language in which we can describe about God, because God obviously, He's a spirit, He doesn't have eyelids. But it's saying that God is squinting His eyes, scrutinizing every single little detail that's going on in the world around us. He sees everything, He gets up close and personal to it. This is very reminiscent of Proverbs 15, verse 3, that says, The eyes of the Lord are in every place, watching the evil and the good. Yahweh rules, and He reigns, and He sees. He sees everything that's going on in the world around David. He sees everything that's going on in the world around us. But also, Yahweh judges. Yahweh judges. He's just not a passive onlooker that doesn't care about these things. Verse 5 says, The Lord tests the righteous and the wicked. This is language of forgery. It's language used to describe the process in which a a blacksmith or ironsmith or whatever would, would take metal and put it in a refinery till it's getting... It's till it's glowing red hot and all of the dross, all of the imperfections, all of the impurities are burned away. And the only thing that is left is the pure unvarnished metal. The Lord tests like this. The Lord tests the righteous and the wicked. He will separate the pure from the impure and he will burn up the imperfections. The Lord will put every man to the test. So all those who live their life selfishly, all those who live their life frivolously, all those who live for this life instead of for the next, or as in this verse says, all of those who live violently, his soul hates and he will burn them up like dross. In verse 6, it says, Upon the wicked he will rain snares. Now this is kind of a play on words here, because snares is a word that means like fowler's nets, nets that are used to catch birds. So the would-be well-wishers come to David and they tell him, you need to flee like a bird. And he says, no, I don't need to flee like a bird. The wicked should flee like a bird because he will rain snares upon them. He is going to catch them. I don't need to be worried about this. And it says that it will rain fowler's nets. In other words, it's just going to be blatantly evident that this is a divine act of God when he judges the wicked. And it says, fire, verse 6, fire and brimstone and burning wind will be the portion of their cup. This is language from Genesis 19. This is language reminiscent of God's judgment upon Sodom and Gomorrah. And so David is saying, look, as God has judged Sodom and Gomorrah, so too will he judge the wicked that are left on the last day. They will not escape. 
So David can find his refuge and his resolve in the Lord because Yahweh rules and he reigns. And because Yahweh sees everything that's going on in this world. And because God, Yahweh, will judge the righteous and the wicked. And he will do away with the wicked. So David is resolved to take refuge in Yahweh because he knows and believes that Yahweh is over all of it. He sees all of it and will judge all of it. So David says, why should I despair? Why should I be worried? How could you even tempt me to not take refuge in the Lord? I shouldn't be fearful of men. I shouldn't be fearful of the things going on in the world around us. This reminds me of the words of our Lord. In Luke chapter 12, Jesus says, Do not be afraid of those who kill the body and after have no more that they can do. But I will warn you of whom to fear. Fear the one whom after he has killed has authority to cast into hell. Yes, I tell you, fear him. Fear him. David is not concerned with what's going on around him. Fourthly, Yahweh rule, or sorry, Yahweh rewards. Another reason why David can take refuge in the Lord is because Yahweh rewards. Verse 7, for the Lord is righteous. He loves righteousness. The upright will behold his face. The reason why David makes his refuge in Yahweh is because he believes that God will judge the righteous and the wicked, and He will reward the righteous. So when the world around him collapses, David has faith that God will do away with the evil and will reward the good. So this is who God is, and this is what God does. And this is why David can take refuge in him. And this is why we ought to take refuge in Yahweh as well. This is why we should not fret about the things that are going on in the world around us. This is why we shouldn't be concerned that there is anti-Christian discrimination abounding in our country. Because Yahweh rules and He sees and He will judge and He will reward the righteous. But friends, I would be remiss if I did not warn you of a dire mistake that we often make when we come to passages like this. So many times we come to passages like this and we often turn it moralistically. We say things like, okay, if I'm going to find my refuge in the Lord, then that means I should not be like the wicked and I should be like the righteous. I don't want God to judge me, therefore I just need to do better. I need to buckle up. And I need to try harder. Now this is wrong thinking for two reasons. It's wrong, first, theologically, because we aren't good. You are not good. And I am not good. And God does not look at us in our natural state and say, oh, they're good enough. I'm going to let them in. Psalm 14, Romans 3, there is none that is good. No one that is righteous. 
No one seeks after God. Isaiah 64, 6, all of our righteous deeds are as filthy rags to God. So it's wrong theologically to come to this passage and say, okay, I just need to do better because we're not good. We're not righteous. But it's also wrong because, second reason, because it misses the entire point of the passage. If you're going to come to this song and make it moralistic and just say, I just need to do better, then you are taking refuge in yourself. You are taking refuge in your own abilities. You are thinking, maybe I just can toe the line. I'm not going to be all in on this Christianity thing. But as long as I do some good things upon the side, maybe the Lord will let me in. That's not how He works, friends. Look, maybe there are some of you here in this room today who you were just in first service listening to Pastor John talking about the assurance of salvation, talking about the joy that we have as believers, talking about the joy we have in light of the things that we believe. And you're thinking to yourself, I don't, I don't have that joy that he's talking about. I, I don't know whether or not I believe these things. Or at least I say these things, but I certainly don't act like I believe these things. Maybe you are a person in here that is towing the line. And you're thinking that, well, as, as long as I just do some good things now and again, then the Lord will be my refuge. Brothers and sisters, if that's not you, then the Lord is not your refuge. Remember the words of our Lord who said, many will say to me that day, Lord, Lord, did we not do X, Y, or Z for your name? Lord, we, we said we, we were Christians. And, and we did things for you. We, we went to church. And we got involved into some things at the church. Is that not enough? We did some good things. Let us in. And the Lord says, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. See, if the Lord is not your refuge, then this psalm is screaming to you, take refuge in the Lord. Stop taking refuge in yourself. Stop towing the line. Come to the Lord for safekeeping because He's the only answer. And if you are a believer and you know it because you have assurance like Pastor John talked about and you are filled with joy, And when we come to this psalm and we think about the world around us, then our response should be this. Don't fret. Don't worry. Take refuge in the Lord. Live in light of your salvation. Live in light of the refuge that you have in the Lord. He has sheltered you. He's protected you. He he has given you the righteousness of Christ. He has given you faith. And you can live confidently that on the last day, He's not going to say, depart from me, I never knew you. He's going to welcome you into His presence and say, well done, my good and faithful servant. And there you you will behold His face, as this psalm says. So don't fret the world around you. But live in light of the fact God is our refuge, not the things of this world.
May that be true of each and every one of us here this morning. Let's pray. Lord, you are our refuge. You are the only refuge. You are the only thing that we can turn to for salvation. You are the only thing that we can turn to for comfort in the midst of a world that seems to be crumbling around us. And Father, we confess to you that so often we do not do this. We look to the circumstances around us to find comfort and security. And Father, we ask that you would forgive us. And we pray that you would give us this resolve. That no matter what's going on around us, that we could easily fight the temptation to despair. And that we could confidently say with David that you are our refuge and you alone. Father, I pray that you would impress upon our hearts who you are and what you do and what you promise that you will do. And I pray that these things would be the motivation for us not to despair, but to always trust in in you. And Lord, I pray that if there is anyone here in this room that, that knows deep down that they have been looking for shelter and security and safety in all the wrong places and they have not exclusively come to you, they haven't abandoned the aspirations that they have for this world, I pray that you would change their hearts, that they would run to you for shelter, that they would not be among those who thought that they were in But in the last day when they stand before you, you say, depart from me, I never knew you. Lord, be with us as we go from this place. May we be resolved to trust you always. In Jesus' name, amen.